Chapter 6 of Seven Wives and Seven Prisons, or Experiences in the Life of a Matrimonial Maniac, a True Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seven Wives and Seven Prisons, or Experiences in the Life of a Matrimonial Maniac, a True Story. Chapter 6 Free Life and Fishing taking care of crazy men, carrying off a boy, arrested for stealing my own horse and buggy, fishing in Lake Winnipesaukee, an odd landlord, a woman as big as a hogshead, reducing the hogshead to a barrel, wonderful verification of a dream, successful medical practice, a busy winter in New Hampshire, blandishments of Captain Brown, I go to Newark, New Jersey. The next day I left Harmony and walked to Port Jarvis on the Erie Railroad, New York, arriving late at night and entirely footsore, sick and disheartened. I went to the hotel, and the next morning I found myself seriously sick. Asking advice, I was directed to the house of a widow who promised to nurse and take care of me. I was ill for two weeks, and, meantime, my half-sister in Delaware County, to whom I made known my condition, sent me money for my expenses, and when I had sufficiently recovered to travel, I went to this sister's house in Sydney, and there I remained several days, till I was quite well and strong again. Casting about for something to do, a friend told me that he knew of an opportunity for a good man at Newbury to take care of a young man, eighteen years of age, who was insane. I went there and saw his father, and he put him under my charge. I had the care of him four months, and during the last two months of the time I travelled about with him, and returned him finally to his friends in a materially improved condition. The friends of another insane man in Montgomery, near Newbury, hearing of my success with this young man, sent for me to come and see them. I went there and found a man who had been insane seven years, but who was quiet and well-behaved, only he was out of his head. I engaged to do what I could for him. The father of my Newbury patient had paid me well, and with my medical practice and the sale of medicines in travelling about, I had accumulated several hundred dollars, and when I went to Montgomery I had a good horse and buggy which cost me five hundred dollars. So when my new patient had been under my care and, and control two months, I proposed that he should travel about with me in my buggy, and visit various parts of the state in the immediate vicinity. His friends thought well of the suggestion, and we travelled in this way about four months, stopping a few days here and there, and when I practised where I could and sold medicines, making some money. At the end of this time I went back to Montgomery with my patient, as I think fully restored, and his father, besides, paying the actual expenses of our journey, gave me six hundred dollars. Returning to Sydney I learned that my first and worst wife was then living with the children at Unadilla, a few miles across the river in Ostego County. I had no desire to see her, but I heard at the same time that my youngest boy, a lad ten years old, had been sent to work on a farm three miles beyond, and that he was not well taken care of. I drove over to see about it, and after some inquiry I was told that the boy was then in school. Going to the schoolhouse and asking for him, the schoolmistress, who knew me, denied that he was there, but I pushed in and found him, and a ragged, miserable-looking little wretch he was— I brought him out, put him into the carriage, and took him with me on the journey which I was then contemplating to Amsterdam, New York, stopping at the first town to get him decently clothed. 
The boy went with me willingly, indeed he was glad to go, and in due time we arrived at Amsterdam, and from there we went to Troy. I had not been in Troy two hours before I was arrested for stealing my own horse and buggy. My turnout was taken from me, and I found myself in Durand's vile. I was not long in procuring bail, and I then set myself to work to find out what this meant. I was shown a handbill describing my person, giving my name, giving a description of my horse, and offering a reward of fifty dollars for my arrest. This was signed by a certain Benson of Kingston-Sullivan County, New York. I then remembered that while I was traveling with my insane patient from Montgomery through Sullivan County, I fell in with a Benson who was a very plausible fellow, and who scraped acquaintance with me, and while I was at Kingston he rode about with me on one or two occasions. One day he told me that he knew a girl just out of the place who was subject to fits and wanted to know if I could do anything for her, that her father was rich and would pay a good price to have her cured. I went to see the girl and did at least enough to earn a fee of one hundred dollars, which her father gladly paid me. Benson also introduced me to some other people whom I found profitable patients. I thought he was a very good friend to me, but he was a cool, calculating rascal. He meant to rob me of my horse and buggy and went deliberately to work about it. First he issued the handbill which caused my arrest in Troy, where he knew I was going. Next, as appeared when he came up to Troy to prosecute the suit against me, he forged a bill of sale. The case was tried and decided in my favor. Benson appealed, and again it was decided that the horse belonged to me. I then had him indicted for perjury and forgery, and he was put under bonds of fourteen hundred dollars in each case to appear for trial. Somehow or other he never appeared, and whether he forfeited his bonds or otherwise slipped through the meshes of the law, I never learned, nor have I ever seen him since he attempted to swindle me. But these proceedings kept me in Troy more than a month, and to pay my lawyer and other expenses I actually sold the horse and buggy the scoundrel tried to steal from me. Taking my boy to Sydney and putting him under the care of my half-sister, I went to Boston, where I met two friends of mine who were about going to Meredith Bridge, New Hampshire, to fish through the ice on Lake Winnipesaugie. It was early in January, 1853, and good clear cold weather. They represented the sport to be capital, and said that plenty of superb lake trout and pickerel could be taken every day, and urged me to go with them. As I had nothing special to do for a few days, I went. When we reached Meredith, we stopped at a tavern near the lake, kept by one of the oddest landlords I have ever met. After a good supper, as we were sitting in the bar-room, the landlord came up to me, and at once opened a conversation in the following manner. "'Well, where do you come from, anyhow?' "'From Boston,' I replied. "'Well, what be you, anyhow?' "'Well, I practice medicine and take care of the sick.' "'Do you ye? Well, do you ever cure anybody?' "'Oh, sometimes, quite frequently, in fact.' "'Do you ye? Well, there's a woman up here to Lake Village, Squire Blaisdell's wife, who has had the dropsy more'n twelve years, been fillin' all the time till they tell me she's bigger'n a hogshead now, and she's had a hundred doctors. The more doctors she has, the bigger she gets. What do you think of that now?' I answered that I thought it was quite likely, and then turned away from the landlord to talk to my friends about a proposed sport for to-morrow, mentally making note of Squire Blaisdell's wife in Lake Village. After breakfast next morning we went out on the lake, cut holes in the ice, set our lines, and before dinner we had taken several fine trout and pickerel, the largest and finest of which we put into a box with ice, and sent as a present to President Pierce in Washington. 
We had agreed the night before to fish for him the first day, and to send him the best specimens we could from his native state. After dinner my friends started to go out on the ice again, and I told them I guess I wouldn't go with them. I had fished enough for that day. They insisted I should go, but I told them I preferred to take a walk and explore the country. So they went to the lake, and I walked up to Lake Village. I soon found Mr. Blaisdell's house, and as a servant who came to the door informed me that Mr. Blaisdell was not at home, I asked to see Mrs. Blaisdell, and was shown in to that lady. She was not quite the hogshead the landlord declared her to be, but she was one of the worst cases of dropsy I had ever seen. I introduced myself to her, told her my profession, and that I had called upon her in the hope of being able to afford her some relief, that I wanted nothing for my services unless I could really benefit her. "'Oh, doctor,' said she, "'you can do nothing for me. In the past twelve years I have had at least forty different doctors, and none of them have helped me.' "'But there can be no harm in trying the forty-first and as I said it, I took from my vest pocket and held out in the palm of my hand some pills. Here, madame, are some pills made from a simple blossom which can't possibly harm you, and which I am sure will do you a great deal of good. Oh, Mary! she exclaimed to her niece, who was in attendance upon her. This is my dream. I dreamed last night that my father appeared to me and told me that a stranger would come with a blossom in his hand, that he would offer it to me, and that if I would take it I should recover. Go and get a glass of water, and I will take these pills at once. Surely, said Mary, you are not going to take this stranger's medicine without knowing anything about it or him. I am indeed. Go and get the water. She took the medicine, and then told me that her father, who had died two years ago, was a physician, and had carefully attended to her case as long as he lived, but that she had a will of her own, and had sent far near for other doctors, though with no good result. "'You have come to me,' she continued, "'and although I am not superstitious, your coming with a blossom in your hand, figuratively speaking, is so exactly in accordance with my dream, that I am going to put myself under your care.' She then asked me if I lived in the neighborhood, and I told her no, that I had merely come up from Boston with two friends to try a few days fishing through the ice on the lake. "'You can fish to better purpose here, I think,' she said. "'You can get plenty of practice in the villages and farmhouses about here. At any rate, stay for the present and undertake my case, and I will pay you liberally.' I went back to Meredith Bridge. I believed it is now called Laconia, and had another day's fishing with my friends. When they were ready to pack up and return to Boston, I astonished them by informing them that I should stay where I was for the present, perhaps for months, and that I believed I could find a good practice in Meredith and adjoining places. So they left me, and I went to the Lake Village, and made that pleasant place my headquarters. The weeks wore on, and if Mrs. Blaisdell was a hogshead, as the Meredith landlord said when I first saw her, she soon became a barrel under my treatment, and in four months she was entirely cured, and was as sound as any woman in the state. I had as much other business, too, as I could attend to, and was very busy and happy all the time. In May I went to Exeter, and alternating between then Portsmouth, and finding enough to do till the end of July. While I was in Portsmouth, on one of my last visits to that place, I received a call from a sea-captain by the name of Brown, who told me that he had heard of my success in dropsical cases, and that I must go to Newark, New Jersey, and see his daughter. Pay, he said, was no object. I must go. 
I told him that I had early finished my business in that vicinity, and that when I went to New York, as I proposed to do shortly, I would go over to Newark and see his daughter. A few days afterward, when I had settled my business and collected my bills in Portsmouth and Exeter, I went to New York, and from there to Newark. End of chapter 6